Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome. You're listening to the uh, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be talking about, the, about alcoholism, the family disease. I'd like to welcome Emma and Lynn to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Um, as members of Al-Anon Family Groups, they're going to um, share their experience of living with the effects of alcoholism and how Al-Anon has helped them cope with the... Uh, the issues that alcoholism brings up in family life. Um, so normally we talk about you know what family life was like growing up, then sort of what happened and why you came to Alaron uh, and how the alcoholism in your family affected you. So um, Emma, do you want to sort of start off? You know, what was family life like growing up, and did you have an alcoholic in your family? I had a very happy childhood in a a migrant family that was you know a, a normal working class um, migrant family who were new to Australia there was no alcoholism in our family but we were just I think coming to terms with being new migrants to Australia and finding our feet in the country I finished school and basically formed a relationship with a man who had a drinking problem but I didn't recognise it because I never really had that much exposure to people who drank. Right. So did you drink at the time? I drank socially and we both drank socially and had a quite a you know, good social life and we had a lot of friends and people in our lives who would have a drink with us but it never initially appeared to be any more than just a happy social sort of um, party sort of lifestyle where we had you know good friends and family and people that we went out with who liked to have a drink as well but it was very much something we did on the weekends and something we did after work and we were very um, engaged in a very big network of people we did things with so at the time when I was young and we first got together it just seemed like just part of our lifestyle it's just normal just normal yeah, yeah. so obviously it progressed so with the progression what what sort of things were starting to happen in your life that, that, that the drinking impacted on? Initially, when we first got together, we both had a very equal and very, I think, supportive relationship. And then over time, the relationship started to become unbalanced. And I became somebody who started to take on more responsibilities and more of the, uh, more of the challenges of life to somehow buffer and protect the person that I was married to who was struggling with the challenges I think and I thought that by protecting him and buffering him and giving him less stress and more less pressure that that would somehow manage help him manage the world and I think what I was doing was trying to help him cope with the world so that he wouldn't need to drink so much but really what I did was effectively enable him to drink more Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't really realise that's what I was doing. And so essentially the relationship over time deteriorated into one where I was responsible for an inordinate amount of things that happened in the family and where work basically and keeping the day-to-day stuff of life going seemed to rest on my shoulders. 
And my husband came and you know, did his job and did his basic things but also had, um, I suppose, a lot of things he opted out of and I let him opt out of those things because I really feel I didn't have a choice. I felt like he couldn't cope and I couldn't do anything else but accept it. Had, it. it had to be done. It had yeah. to be done. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, did you have any children? I have one son, yeah. and during the primary school years, when my son was in primary school, we sort of managed to be a functional family. But as he moved into adolescence, the wheels fell off, and his behaviour became my husband's behaviour became more concerning. And both my son and I lived in a really fearful space where we were scared to to what we were going to come home to at the end of the day because we didn't really know how much alcohol he consumed, what state he was in and whether he was going to be okay or not to come home to. So we both, I think, were fearful. We ha- I had a lot of anxiety, and I was very worried about what latest sort of impulsive, sort of not particularly well thought out, crazy thing was going to happen to our family because these sorts of things happened a lot. You know, he would leave jobs a lot. He was very str- He struggled with his relationships, so he would often be in conflict with different people. And there was just always this tension that was, you know, I always felt like one disaster, we were just lurching from one disaster to the next. Mm, yeah, my similar experience. My dad lost a few jobs because he had fights with people. Yeah. You know, stand-up fights. Um, and, yeah, it's, I, think, I think it's, it's sort of common in an alcoholic um, family where you have to deal with issues that come into the home because of the behaviour of the alcoholic and you know, you, it's not something that you that, that that you're used to, but you just have to sort of cope with. Oh, we'll have to move, and I'll have to get a new, a, a new job. And um, you know, I think I went to five primary schools up to mm. grade two uh, because of Dad's drinking, um, and that's you know we had to move, and that was just life. So um, yeah, um, so Lynn, you're you were different. You grew up with an alcoholic dad. I did. Yeah. So what what was it like? for you growing up in an alcoholic home? Okay, so for me, I grew up in a war service home area in Blackburn, which was supplied to return service people. My father was a POW in Changi, so he came home with war neurosis and an incredibly broken man he was, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And um, living in that war service home area which was a beautiful part of the world and it was a lovely home but all of the people around me were damaged people all of the kids I played with um, came from homes that had been affected by the war so I didn't know any different Mm. it was normal for me yeah it's hard for kids growing up in an alcoholic home because they don't know anything different in real terms um so uh, your dad was obviously working, so how did that, you know, could he keep down a job? My father did work and he worked very hard. He worked a five-and-a-half-day week, uh, which was very stressful for him in the city. So he had to go in by train every day. And for a person who was already suffering high anxiety, I guess we'd call it post-traumatic stress disorder now, he had to hold down a job in the post office in the city. And he... Um, And he was often exhausted by the end of the day and with hindsight I'm thinking he probably jumped off the train and uh, found a pub that was nearby 
where he could uh, tank up before he came home because Blackburn was a dry area in those days. And um, so he'd come home more often than not very intoxicated, although we were never quite sure what was around the corner. And um, so he was always very stressed and tired and anxious when he got home and often brought home alcohol with him to sort of... uh, to deal with that stress. Yeah. So what did your mum do? So mum was the... Um, she was the chief cook and bottle washer. She was the manager. She was the organiser. She handled the bills and she actually went out and had little little clandestine part-time jobs to pay for the roads to be made and the sewerage to be done, unbeknownst to my father, to bring in a little bit of extra money because money was tight and uh, my home was, my upbringing was very much a working class um, environment and, um, yeah. Did you feel safe at home? That's a very good question. And at the time, because I didn't know any difference, I became a nail-biter, I slept badly, I was very fearful going to bed uh, of what might be under the bed. As I grew up, I was quite scared of being um, separated from my father physically because he became more violent as time went on when he was drinking. And so I spent a lot of time in my bedroom behind a locked door, which in and of itself wasn't a very healthy way to live one's life. Yeah. So your mum kept your dad's going in real terms? That's, that's true, she did. Um, and she was very devoted to my father. She had a very, very strong, strong sense of duty to him as, a, as a, um, a war vet, I guess. But she was also very devoted to me as well. So she was a very, very stressed woman and very much unsupported uh, in the family directly um, and people didn't come to the house to support her. She had to go out and find friends and support outside the home. I recall that from time to time we'd meet up with people and have, you know, have a picnic in the park or whatever and I, I overheard her chatting in conversations around what was going on in the home and it was pretty pretty uncomfortable but as a kid I just kind of got on with it. Yeah, okay. So did you... Would you consider your childhood friendships normal? Did you bring you obviously didn't bring kids home? Um, funnily enough, I did, you know, oh, because right. the, the, the kids that lived around me were growing up in similar circumstances to myself. There was a lot of domestic violence. There was a lot of a lot of unpleasantness, um, and, and we just all kind of did the normal things that kids do. We rode bikes and we went to the bars and we climbed trees and we did all that sort of stuff. But there was a kind of pressure around um, fear of going home, fear of not being at home on time, uh, anxiety around what you'd see when you got home. And all the kids seemed to have that sort of collective mentality. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um so, Emma, living, living with an alcoholic with a young child, it must have been difficult as, as his drinking progressed for you to keep on top of it and, and keep going. So what, what sort of things were you doing to keep your family going? 
I felt like I had to, I had to micromanage every possible disaster that might possibly happen by navigating my life and my family around the things that might possibly happen and trying to prevent it. Yeah. So I suppose it was a type of controlling behaviour. I, I see it as sort of almost like a survival thing where I was constantly thinking, what crazy, unpredictable, scary thing is going to happen to me and my family? What can I do to somehow buffer myself from that? And how can I navigate around it and somehow do it before it happens so that I can sort of somehow lessen the impact of it so I don't feel pain and I don't feel distress and I don't feel the whole... Um, distress of being in this uncomfortable situation that's not in my control. So I kind of lived in this weird place where I was walking on eggshells, fearful of my partner, scared of what crazy thing he was going to bring into the family, but at the same time looking after him and accommodating him and being very nurturing towards him, hopefully, I mean, hopeful that he would find some help and find some way of getting better because he kept articulating to me how he didn't feel great, how he felt like he had mental health issues and how he really wanted support. So I was trying to be supportive but also trying to juggle that fear of what what's going to happen next. And, and I did have this fear of disaster, like I had this fear that some disaster was going to befall us and it was just around the corner. Yep. And I lived in that sort of state of fear and anxiety about the unknown, about everything and nothing in particular. Right. (laughs) So did he perceive alcohol as a problem? No, he saw his drinking as the necessary medicine that he needed to manage his mental health issues. And he, he described them as, you know, he felt that he was anxious, he felt his anxiety was very crippling, and he felt that he had difficulties with managing himself. And even though he didn't always put it that way, he would say that, you know, he needed that alcohol to cope. And what happened over time was that the actual, it was very clear to me that he had dependence on the alcohol and that the mental health issues were very much coming when he didn't have a drink. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. so he saw them as, you know, I'm treating my mental health issue because I have a problem with anxiety. And then over time, I saw the anxiety as a direct result of being in the addiction. You know, if yeah. I don't, if I'm really anxious because I haven't got a drink or I yeah. haven't got alcohol on the premises, then the anxiety seems to get worse. So yeah. so it became this tug of war between us where I kept saying, you need some help around your anxiety and your addiction because yeah. you're actually stuck in this addiction. And he kept saying, no, I'm not an addict. I've got no problems with addiction really. What I've got is anxiety and you just don't understand me and you're not being supportive of me. So we just had this constant tension between the two of us around what a real source of the tension is in the family. Yeah. I now realise that was desire, denial and that he couldn't acknowledge that he was in the grip of the disease. And I kept trying to convince him that he was, and the more I tried to convince him, the more he resisted. And we just had this, you know, it was almost like beating your head against a brick wall. That's what it felt like being married, being able to see the grip of the disease, to see someone addicted, to see someone anxious when they didn't have a drink, to see it clearly in front of you, but then have someone tell you, no, actually that's not the case, this isn't the problem. I'm perfectly fine. It's just that I need a drink to cope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, Lynn, did your dad acknowledge his alcoholism, that drinking was a problem? I don't believe he ever did, really. It was like the elephant in the, la- in the room. Yeah. Um, and although he never, ever brought anybody home to drink with, I think he probably had drinking mates at pubs in the city when he was at work or 
or perhaps that he met on the way home from work or whatever. But no, it was, in fact, I didn't even realise that I ever had an, an, an issue or well, mum had an issue with alcoholism because it was just... Normal. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> okay. Um, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, here's a quick subscriber announcement from the St Vincent's Hospital. One of Melbourne's longest-running hospitals, St Vincent's Hospital, is turning 125. They're calling on community to help rising funds. To support the vital work of the hospital by participating in a pyjama-themed fun run. On Sunday, April 15, at Princess Park in Carlton North. Registrations are now open. For more information, head to stvincentsfunrun.org.au. St Vincent's is a 3CR supporter. Ah, and the other community announcement we have is that um, we have AA on our program every once a, once a month. Um, and the Melbourne AA Steps are having a weekend on Friday the 13th to Sunday the 15th of April this year uh, at the Banyul Theatre in Heidelberg in Melbourne. Tickets cost $30 and include lunch. Um, so they're going to be talking about recovery in the 12 Steps and um, they're going to have nine sessions and they'll have guest speakers who can answer your queries about the steps. Um, details are available online at uh, stepsweekend.aaevents.org.au or you can call them on 03 Um If you'd like podcasts of the show, they're available at 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree and also on iTunes. Uh, we post them shortly after the show, usually by the weekend. Um, there's podcasts of other 3CR, 3CR shows available at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. And if you have a question or a comment about the show, then you can call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com. Um, we're talking to two members of Alan and Family Groups today, uh, Emma and Lynn, and they're talking about growing up and living with alcoholism, the family disease. Um, so, Emma, you're working two jobs to keep the family together, so... That must put a bit of stress on you and the family. So what's that, what's that like trying to carry an alcoholic husband? I feel, um, well, he did have work and was able to work um, in jobs. He, he was so unstable in his work. He was often changing jobs and leaving and often underemployed or not working that the main breadwinner job and the main responsibility and the main pressure fell on me. And... I was, you know, working two jobs, doing as much as I could to sort of keep everything going and maintain uh, maintain our family's finances. But it was just almost like falling in quicksand because even though I was w- working really, really hard, I was slowly sinking and going down in the quicksand and falling behind, I think, financially. And so it was just this enormous pressure. I felt overwhelmed by it and felt like it was impossible to do by myself. And I kept sort of trying to engage my husband in in support and understand, trying to get him to understand the pressure that I was under and the help that I needed. But it just seemed to, he just didn't seem to hear what I was saying. He just didn't understand what that pressure felt like. 
and sort of abrogated himself from even thinking about it. He sort of just said, oh, well, you know, there's plenty of money. We don't need to worry. But actually I was the one paying all the bills and keeping everything ticking over and could see that we were just on a knife edge the whole time. So that feeling of being on a knife edge, that financial stress and that feeling like I was just about on the brink of disaster all the time stayed with me for a very long time and even when things were good I still felt that I was on a knife edge financially. I um, felt enormous pressure and that pressure then turned into resentment I think over time. I felt enormous resentment about the fact that I seemed to be the the sole bedwinner and the main person kind of keeping everything going and I was the one who was depriving myself from things like I yeah. wasn't paying you know I wasn't buying myself things or going to the dentist or getting for you know getting things done and I didn't see my husband deny himself anything yeah. so he he would you know he'd be drinking designer beers and engaging in whatever drinking he wanted and spending money and leaving me with no money for milk and bread Plus, he was sitting on the couch drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And towards the end of our marriage, he wasn't working anymore. He'd just basically taken up, basically drinking instead of working, and saying, "I can't do this anymore. It's all too much." But at the same time, not doing steps to take some sort of responsibility for himself. Yeah. So, did you? Was it a point of conflict about his drinking? Was that a constant form of tension? It was a constant tension in the marriage, and we would have periods where things were okay. I would say that in the early years of the marriage, the marriage was sort of 80% positive and harmonious and 20% was negative and difficult and the 20% that was negative and difficult was pretty much around the drinking. Over the time, it went from 20 to 80 to the other way around. So it went from 20% where we had a positive kind of engaging relationship and 80% where the negativity around the drinking just became the main focus of the marriage. And we were very... Um, the way that I coped, I think, in living with somebody who was just so resistant to engaging in any acknowledgement of the situation was initially we would argue and fight and have these massive discussions, but nothing really changed. He would just continue. And it felt like I was in some sort of groundhog day where nothing was ever moving Mm. forward. Then over time, what I did was I just stopped communicating about it. I just forced all my feelings down. I stopped saying all the things that upset me. I just tried really hard to detach, but it was just really eating me away, watching this person kill themselves with alcohol and Mm. not listen to the impact it was having on his son and myself. And so so that sort of learnt behaviour of just forcing myself not to communicate about it because I just felt it just made the aggression and the difficulty and the nastiness worse and shutting myself off like that took a long time to undo because I lived for years sort of basically trying really hard to sort of not and not not make it worse yeah not make it worse yeah, and not yeah. poke a bear with a stick yeah. essentially that's what I was feeling like it was like I was feeling like if I uh, I tried really hard to communicate the communication had failed we couldn't seem to resolve anything and then just in and then I just sort of gave up and I gave up in this quiet, passive way where I just stopped saying the things that really um, ate away at me. Yeah. And it did eat away at me. We still have flare-ups every so often when the behaviour was so extreme and the drinking was so out of control that it scared me or I'd get really upset. But it was, you know, the impact and the toll that that took on me, I think, kind of keeping that stuff inside 
not feeling like I could share that with anyone because I felt very ashamed of the fact that my husband had this problem. And so I put a lot of energy into putting a, you know, putting a veneer over the top of our family life that looked like it was okay on the surface. Mm. I was kind of delusional though because I think everyone could see that my husband had a big problem with alcohol. But I sort of had this idea that, you know, I put all this energy into keeping everything looking right, that it would be okay and no one would notice that the family was really in quite a lot of distress. Right, okay. Um, so, Lynn, um, growing up you eventually, you know, grew up and was able to, to leave home. So what was what was that like for you to be able to get out of to get out of home and what sort of things were you doing? Yeah, well secondary school was uh was trickier and got trickier even more towards the last two years of school which were the most important ones. Um, and study was difficult at home with a dad who uh, was getting progressively worse with his drinking, more dangerous and sicker all round with his drinking. Uh, he was very volatile. Uh, he was very physically um, abusive um, to property and so forth, threw things around and that kind of thing. And uh, so it was always very much, as has already been said today, walking on eggshells, I really relate to that, um, avoiding situations that could have set him off. So it really cramped my style as a young teenager. I was, uh, well, as an older teenager as well, I guess, uh, right through those years because, one, I couldn't bring people home to my home Uh well, actually, that's not strictly true. I had a boyfriend from years 10 to 12 who used to come on a Sunday night for dinner, yeah. for tea in those days it was yeah. called, yeah. because that was a safe night. Dad was never drunk on a Sunday night. Yeah. So, um, But overall, it was difficult. So when I actually did tertiary studies um, and I was able to experience a different, a different lifestyle because... There was a lot more social life at uni and at college and those sort of places where where people went when they were trying to kind of improve themselves and get a degree or whatever, um, which gave me a freedom to become myself and it gave me an opportunity to see people in normal situations, I guess, as compared with what I grew up with. And it broadened my horizons and it gave me... A greater sense of um, that I'd made it despite my father's drinking and I realised also that he'd worked very hard to keep me at school and my mother had done the best that she could. So overall, I was a lucky girl. Yeah. <laughs> so what? So you went out to, to work eventually? I did, yeah. yeah. And so breaking away from the family, did that give you some relief? Absolutely. Um I had a different purpose in life and uh, I had actually made it. I'd actually succeeded academically and I had a good career path and I can thank my mother for that. She certainly was invested in my future and wanted me to have a much better way of life than what she'd had growing up in her circumstances. And um, there was always at the back of or at the heart of my being, if you like, um, a sense that I wasn't a complete person, even though I had a great career. I had 
I had lovely people around me in my life, friends and so forth and, and partners and whatever in those early years of adulthood. But I, there was something missing and I, I suppose that when I look back on, on that, I realised that it was to do with uh, not really being able to develop an identity when the alcoholic was the focus of everything that happened in our life when a child should have that opportunity, I believe, to actually be the centre of the family in in those growing up years. Yeah. I didn't have that. (laughs) So did your dad's drinking get worse? It did. Yes, it certainly did. Um, And in the end, it it meant that he eventually couldn't go to work. He was very, very... um, He's... His drinking issues complicated his ability to sort of get up out of bed in the morning and to come home from work at night and to to kind of navigate through the day. And plus he was very sick physically as a result of his drinking. I guess it's cumulative over the years and uh, he had a lot of stomach ulcers and various other bits and pieces uh, affected by by his drinking and... um, so he wasn't able to continue working and he passed away before he was 64. Right, okay. Um, did you um, get any help at any point about you know, that, that, those feelings that you had towards your father and the situation? Actually, I knew that there was something that, was not completing me and I didn't I was I didn't know how to go around resolving that so I was always mindful of self-help programs and um, personal growth books and Buddhism and you name it I meditation all those kinds of things Um, but it wasn't until I found a therapist a psychologist who had written an article in The Age and it was entitled Why Am I Yelling at My Child? And I have two sons and my son at that, my older son was seven at the time when I discovered the psychologist and it took me back to how I was yelled at a lot by my mother who was not the drinker but who was deeply affected by my father's drinking and so I was groomed in a way by my mother to be a yeller and a controller and a manager And I didn't like it. I didn't like what I was starting to do to my children. So I followed through with this this psychologist whose article was in the paper and um, she put me in the way of Al-Anon. Oh, okay. Right. Thank you. Um, So, Emma, you eventually got help through a friend. So what was, how did that come about? I had this beautiful friend called Natalie and we've been friends for a very long time. And we used to have catch-ups on Saturday afternoon where the kids would play and we'd have cups of tea and we'd just talk about our lives and talk about how we were going. And I was doing this quite frequently, going around every you know, every other Saturday, every so often, um, catching up with Nat and just having a lovely natter. And one day she said to me, you know, Em, um, I'm going to go to a meeting that you might actually like to come with me to. And she actually lived around the corner from where the community centre was, where the meeting was held. And she took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. So I had no idea where I was going. (laughs) 
But she had heard enough of my story and had seen my husband in action and knew what I was dealing with enough to know that Al-Anon was the right place for me. And she had obviously been going for a very long time herself and never really shared that with me, so I didn't realise. And I um, it must have been why I kept gravitating towards her um, when uh, I had difficulties with my husband. There was some sort of peace that she had. There was some sort of coping that she had that I didn't have. Yeah. And it made me seem to seek her out to go have cups of tea with her on Saturday afternoons. Because of it, I was seeking what she had. And then magically she showed me what the secret was, which was to, you know, to actually be part of the Al-Anon Fellowship. Right. Okay. Yeah. So how did it feel going to a meeting that you had no idea what you were going to? What was the experience like? It was really strange. So the first meeting I sort of went and the people in the room were very, um, like very sensitive to the fact that it was my first meeting and I heard all the people talk about their story. I started to think, oh, well, this is somewhere where I can learn how to fix my husband. So I sort of went in there thinking I'll go and hear what this special secret formula is to fixing my alcoholic husband and then my family will be okay and if I can get my husband to stop drinking, my family will be okay and my life will be okay. And that was the way my mind worked at that time. And I just listened to all the people and their stories were exactly the same as mine. They're all over-responsible, feeling anxious, feeling responsible for everything in their family, all feeling, you know, all the feelings of guilt, frustration and resentment that I had, all the shame that I felt. And I just started crying. I, I wept as I heard everyone share their story and it was almost the same as mine. Mm. One way or another, they were sharing my life. Yep. And I felt such a really amazing connection to the people in the room. And they're all very different for me. A lot of older people, people who I would never have thought had anything in common with me, and yet they actually understood. Mm. Yeah. Great feeling, isn't it? It was a great feeling. Yeah. 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 Okay. This is The Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking to Emma and Lynn about how Alan has helped them cope with alcoholism in their lives. Um, so, Emma, going to the, your first Al-Anon meeting was, you know, inspiring, uplifting, amazing. So, did your husband get to AA? Well, it's sort of an interesting story. I think as I became connected to the Al-Anon Fellowship, I had a couple of friends whose husband were in the were, were also in AA and. One of them came by to visit me one day and said, look, I think what I'll do is I'll take him for, with me to a meeting. I'll come around and pick him up. Yep. So he was too polite to say no, so we went <laughs> along to the AA meeting, but I don't think he really wanted to go and came back from the from the AA meeting with a six-pack, yep. <laughs> said, um, I don't really belong there. They're all they're all people who've got a drinking problem, and that's not me. I they're don't have hopeless, a, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're drunks, and I'm not someone with a drinking problem. I've got a mental health issue, and I need alcohol as medicine for my mental health issue, but I don't actually have a drinking problem. That was his answer to me. And then he said to me, I don't actually want sobriety. I'm actually quite happy the way I am. <laughs> and I just sort of had this epiphany. I thought... He's actually not really got an acknowledgement that maybe there is an issue here and nothing's going to change. 
And I think at that point, so previous to that, I still had hope that he would find recovery or that he would do something because he was saying, oh, I'll go and get some counselling, I'll go get some help, I need to do something about my mental health issue. He was resistant around talking about the drinking issue, but he mm. was open to talking about the fact that he felt anxious. And, you know, slowly it became very clear to me that the anxiety was linked to the drinking. Though. And what was also very clear to me was that he was quite stuck and mm. paralysed in his sort of pattern of behaviour. And then I was sitting here waiting for things to change and I couldn't do anything about his his situation. The only thing I could change was me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, what, so what brought your, I guess, your response to a head? Was there something in your life that, that changed? Yeah. That, that... I think I had a very... I think I went to Al-Anon meetings. I actually had to keep it secret because when he worked out I was going to Al-Anon meetings, he became quite nasty about it. He said, oh, you're going to those meetings where you're just talking about me and um, bad-mouthing me to all those women and, you know, and they're all sort of, you know, and I'm like, you know, I don't want you going there and talking about me to other people. So there was this pressure to sort of keep the the family disease a secret, like mm. it was a big secret. And so I'd sort of, so I'd say to, I'd say to him, I was going to church and then go to my meeting, <laughs> and uh, he kind of accepted that because I had a religious background when I was growing up. And s- slowly, I started to apply the principles. And the first thing I did was I started to sort of disconnect myself a little bit from my husband and I disconnected my finances a bit because by paying for everything, including all this alcohol and cigarettes, I was enabling him and I started to realise that's what I was doing because I hadn't quite realised that. So in doing Mm. that, I started to realise that I was enabling him because of my fear of him and that actually I needed to develop some courage to actually stand up and say no. I was sort of doing that on and off very gradually for a year or so, maybe a second year in the second year of me, you know, slowly detaching and separating and applying the principles. I had a health scare. And in that health scare, I um, was, they found a lump in my breast and the doctors were pretty much very, not very sure whether it was cancer or not, but they were subjecting me to lots of tests. And and I was... Um, basically needing to go in for surgery to have a look to so mm. they could work it out. Mm. And I had to sit down with my son and explain to him that I might be very sick. My husband was very blasé at the time, saying, oh, you'll be okay, you know, stop being a sook. Yeah. He was always trying to force my feelings down and sort of tell me how to feel and he didn't like me being too emotional. He had this attitude that I was a very emotional woman and that I was overreacting to many things, including his drinking. Yeah. And... I sat down with my son and said, look, I think I might be really sick. I don't know for sure, but I'm going in for surgery and if it turns out that it is cancer, I might be in, you know, for the fight of my life. I, You know, there's going to be some, you know, medical things I might need to do. Anyway, my son said to me, Mum, if you're sick, you can't leave me with Dad because if you leave me with Dad, my life is over. And he kind of had this real, there was this real clarity where I realised that I couldn't stay living with my husband and leave my son in the care of someone who couldn't manage himself, let alone care for my son, who was still only very young. Mm. And he was 14 at the time and he just had this clarity and he said, Mum, you can't leave me with Dad. My life will be over if you leave me with Dad. So in the week I went to see, I went to see a surgeon and 
book myself in for an operation and I also went to see a lawyer in the same week. Right. And in that week I had um, – I put in I put in the um, the process to actually leave my husband. Right. And I put in my referral for a surgeon to actually deal with my cancer. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, you know, and, and that sort of really big um, life crisis made – the clarity around what was the right thing for me really crystal clear, yeah. and I recognised that I couldn't keep looking after him. I had to look after me. Mm. Okay, right. Um, so, Lynn, um, exposed to Alanon, you came into Alanon, um, and you didn't really know much about alcoholism. So, how does that work? <laughs> well, you know, um, I grew up with it from the time I was very young, and I was surrounded by it in the neighbourhood. Um, but because it wasn't considered to be anything other than normal in inverted commas, there wasn't much attention drawn to it. And so when I was, it was suggested by this, um, counsellor that I joined Al-Anon, I thought she meant AA. Mm. I didn't even realise there was an Al-Anon group for for families and friends of people who've been affected by someone's drinking. So it was quite shocking to me to actually even be aware that there was such a thing and that I might actually have been affected by by someone else's drinking, namely my father, and perhaps more so by my mother, who wasn't even a drinker. And um, so it was a fairly confronting and... Uh, challenging time for me um, to to create a different sort of mindset around around how I how I felt about myself and the opportunity that I might have to change my way of being and my way of operating and my way of interacting with people in my own family and my friendship groups and that was amazing so your mum had also died by then? Yes, well and truly, yes, yeah. she had. And um, I actually had counselling, first of all, before I was directed to Alan around my mother. That's what actually took me to therapy in the first place because, as I said before, the yelling, why are you yelling at your child? And um, it was an absolute revelation for me to realise that... Um, I could have been affected by default. So my mother treated me the way she treated me as a byproduct of the way she treated the alcoholic. And I, I was part of that triangle, if you yeah. like. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you find Alanon? Well, how did I find it? You mean literally? Yeah. Or? No, I mean, <laughs> how did you find the Alanon meetings? Okay. So my first meeting was. Um, in Frankston, and it was in the evening, and so there were a lot of people there, an enormous amount of people. It was almost like a congregation, really. There were so many people. And it was a bit overwhelming, but I saw the slogans and the traditions and the and the steps on the wall, and I decided to be open-minded about it because a professional had recommended the program to me, and the instant that people started talking and sharing their their experiences um i felt like i was coming home mm. i felt i felt an, a, a rush of um connection 
and a huge sense of relief that finally I can feel something inside me shifting because of a source of help via Al-Anon available to me. And I've been in the program for many years now and will continue to do so because every day is a new day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, Emma, if you um, once you started you know, going to Al-Anon and doing things differently, which led to your separation from your husband... So how did that play out in your life then? Yeah, because you're living with an alcoholic's a pretty, pretty tough gig. So what's it like being separated and having a program like Al-Anon? Well, initially I think um, I needed the support and strength of the Al-Anon Fellowship to help me get through a reasonably difficult separation and mm. actually give me the strength to leave. I was very fearful of going, not because I, I – I'd sort of – been I sort of manipulated into feeling guilty about it and also felt that if I had left because my ex-husband was talking about killing himself and was so unstable with his mental health and was such an erratic person I honestly had this fear that he might do something dreadful to himself and that my son would hold me responsible for that mm. and that fear and manipulation kept me in the marriage even though yeah. I was miserable yeah. I felt like a hostage mm. so I was sort of in this hostage situation for service, uh, supporting somebody who really resented me anyway and didn't like me anymore as a person, mm. who wasn't interested in me as a person. I was very isolated and very lonely and I just didn't feel like I could share and talk about anything. So the Al-Anon program took away my feeling of isolation. I felt more lonely when I was married than I was on my when I was on my own and that mm. loneliness disappeared because... I had this lovely connection to this group of people who understood and I felt an affinity with. Through that support and through the tools and the and the supports of the program, I started to actually build my self-esteem because what yep. I recognised was that my self-esteem was pretty much non-existent. Yep. And with that, I was able to, you know, I work through, a, an, an, I suppose, a plan to re to basically rebuild my life. Yep. So I maintained, uh, so I looked after my son, got myself a new place, got myself a new job and got myself into a place where I felt like I was happy in my own self again. Mm. But it took three years of solid meetings and a lot of um, step work to actually feel comfortable in myself. I felt relief initially about having left the person who was making me crazy. But then I realised once I stepped away that I still had a lot of a lot of damage, I think, from living in the disease that was still with me whether I was living with the alcoholic or not. Yeah. I still had lots of fearfulness. I still had lots of anxiety. I still had lots of self-pity. I still had lots of difficulty actually managing the world and coming to terms with things um, that were um, fearful for me, that made me feel fearful. Okay. Mm. Thank you. Well... It's time. We're going to have to stop there, unfortunately. Um, and if if anybody's listening who um, has a problem with someone else's drinking and you want to know more, you can call Alaron Family Groups. Um, their phone number is 1300 252 or you can go online at alanon.org.au. Um, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Emma and Lynn for coming in today and sharing their Alan and Family Group recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Sir. 
Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from a gambling addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Gamblers Anonymous. Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring Black News and Views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to Living Free program today. (laughs) 